Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a personal tragedy that emphasizes the importance of medication safety during National Poison Prevention Month. Maisie was the happiest little girl I've ever met. She was down on the kitchen floor for about five minutes and she walked home, put her in her jammies and put her down to bed and she didn't wake up. We just really do not want this to happen to anyone else that we can prevent anyone else from going through it as well. That's what we like to do. And epidemiologists from Syracuse University discuss quarantines and what's important to know about COVID-19. To think about your risk of not only getting the disease and having severe consequences from it, but then also your risk of bringing it back when you return from that trip. And if that is a risk that you're also willing to take. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about coronavirus from an epidemiologist's point of view. But first, March is National Poison Prevention Month. It's also the month when Maisie Gillen was born. This year, she would have turned two. Today, we'll hear from her parents about her tragic death and how you can examine whether you're being safe with medication. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, HealthLink on Air has a heartbreaking story to share. It's a tragedy with an important lesson for improving the safety of prescription medications. With me by phone are Adam and Mary Beth Gillen, the parents of Miss Maisie Gillen. They live in Rochester, New York. In January 2019, after a visit to a neighbor's home, they put their nine-month-old daughter to bed, and the next morning she did not wake up. First of all, let me thank the two of you for being willing to talk about this and share your story. Can you tell us about Maisie? Uh, Maisie was the happiest little girl I've ever met. Um, always a big smile on her face. She enjoyed playing with her big sister and older cousins and super happy girl. Always smiling, always dancing. And nine months old, right? Yes, nine and a half months old. So take us back, if you will, to that January day. Now, th this was, had you recently moved into a new home? Yes, we had been there a couple months, and our neighbors invited us over for dinner, um, kind of a welcome to the neighborhood, get to know each other. Um, so we were really excited about that. Um, we brought our two girls over, Rona, who was almost three at the time, and Maisie, who was nine and a half months. Um, we had a really nice dinner, good conversation. Um, Maisie was in my arms most of the evening. Um, she had recently started crawling, so she did start kicking at one point to be put down. So she was down on the kitchen floor for about five minutes, and I was crouched down on the floor with her as well as our neighbor's oldest daughter. Um, the only thing I saw on the floor was a bowl of cat food and a bowl of water, which they moved because Maisie was going to go a beeline for the, the cat food. Um, didn't see anything else. Um, and, yeah, she was only on the floor about five minutes and back in our arms. Um, we were there a little past her bedtime, so she fell asleep in my arms, which is not unordinary. Um, we walked home, put her in her jammies, and put her down to bed. And um, then the next morning... I went in her room around 6 in the morning, and um, she didn't wake up. Um, we administered CPR, and the medics were there very quickly, but they told us there was nothing they could do. And then about two weeks later, we um, learned that she had passed away from a methadone overdose, which was something my husband Adam and I had were not familiar with. We had never heard of methadone before. And so um, initially, it, it seemed to be a sudden infant death syndrome case? That's what we thought. Um, nothing really made sense. She was a healthy baby. Um, she wasn't sick at the time. She didn't have any allergies. We, the only thing that made sense was SIDS, but even that didn't really make much sense for us. Um, 
especially in a safe sleeping environment and all the risk factors are pretty low for, for it to be SIDS, but that's what we thought for the two weeks. Did you know what methadone was? No, the uh, police had to tell us what it was. Um, so we, we were pretty floored when we heard what it was and really couldn't think of where that could have come from. Um, the police conducted an investigation and they found out that it came from an elderly relative who was visiting our neighbors and must have dropped a pill. And, and Maisie must have gotten it in those minutes that she was out of your arms. Yes, and she supervised the whole time, so we think it just got stuck to a finger, and um, kids always have their fingers in their mouth at that age, and um, that's our best guess. So. The pill itself is very small, so it, it would have been tough to see a white pill on a kitchen floor. So why are you willing to talk about this tragedy? Um, we just really do not want this to happen to anyone else. This has been a nightmare for us, and if we can prevent anyone else from going through it as well, that's what we like to do. Have you talked about what could be done to sort of protect this from happening to someone else? There are lots of things, some of them simple and things that people can just do within their own home such as the, the mantra that has been repeated for a while uh, for safe practice to keep medicines up and away, to take them over a sink, uh, to keep them in their actual containers that are, um, you know, that have mechanisms for child protection. Those are some of the simple things. Some of the, the broader things that you look into is, as you expand out are, um, you know, being up opportunities to provide lock boxes to keep medications in uh, that people may not have, to uh, even legislation to bring around unit dose packaging, which is something that methadone does not currently come in. It currently comes in uh, a regular, you know, sort of pill container. And unit dose packaging has been shown in a number of different studies with a number of different drugs to really mitigate and almost eliminate the the calls to poison control centers for uh, children having access to it. So and that that would that, be a unit dose would be like a blister pack, a, yeah, an a individual pack, pill? like you might get a Claritin in or something like that. Gotcha. And blister packs make people, they force people to be intentional with taking medication one at a time um, or handling medication one at a time rather than pouring it into your hand and and they may not know that one spills out of their hand. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we're talking about the sometimes devastating consequences of unintentional medication exposure in children with Adam and Mary Beth Gillen. They're the parents of Maisie Gillen in Rochester. And now joining me in the studio is toxicologist Gina Marafa from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Marafa. Thank you. Now, from the perspective of the Poison Center, which serves all of upstate New York, how big of a problem are unintentional medication exposures in children? Unintentional poisonings in children is a significant problem, both at the upstate New York Poison Center as well as nationally. If you look at national call statistics, there's more than 900,000 calls each year to the American Association of Poison Control Centers regarding children less than six years of age. And so if you think about that for a minute, Children are a large, is one of the major reasons that people call poison control centers. And children have, they, and it's because they get into a lot of different things. And so unintentional exposures to medications, both prescription and over-the-counter medications, unintentional exposures to household chemicals um, and cleaning supplies that could cause um, toxicity. So unintentional poisonings are a significant concern, um, both within our within the upstate New York Poison Center as well as nationally. When you talk about the medications that are that children get a hold of, are we talking about prescription or over-the-counter? So both. So both prescription and over-the-counter medicines um, are a significant cause of unintentional poisonings in children. Um, some are relatively 
safe where it doesn't require a lot of, doesn't require healthcare intervention, but a lot of medications, even medications that are available over the counter can be um, quite toxic and even deadly in a child in very, very small doses. So this methadone, that that's obviously one of the most dangerous ones, right? Uh, but what are some of the other medications that are that cause the most problem for little kids? So when we think about medications that can cause significant poisoning in children in small doses, so doses like one or two pills, opioid pain medicines are of the highest, probably the highest amount. So methadone is one of those medicines that's considered an opioid pain medicine. Other medicines that are like that are things like hydrocodone or oxycodone. Um, and so opioid pain medicines in one pill can be devastating in a child, um, as unfortunately Adam and, and Mary Beth have experienced firsthand. Um, there are other medicines that are just as dangerous. So heart medications or blood pressure medications, um, one pill in a child can result in severe um, toxicity. Um, so heart medications, um, medications that people take for depression or so antidepressants or antipsychotic medications can result in toxicity um, in children in very small doses. Diabetes medicines um, can result in significant toxicity. And there are a few others that sometimes people don't even really think about or realize or are poisonous. So an example would be a medicine called benzonitate. It's a brand name, Tessalon Pearls. It's used often for um, to stop a cough. And in the winter, when we have a lot of cough and cold, it's commonly prescribed. And that medicine in one pill can result in significant toxicity in a child. So the list of medications that can cause harm in children is, is quite big. Now, aren't medications required to be packaged in childproof containers, though? So as medication, so when you go to your pharmacy to pick up a medication, um, you, they are, you normally will get them dispensed where they have a, a child-resistant top on that. Um, and so a lot of kids, even though it's child-resistant, a lot of kids are still able to open that. Um, there are some people, particularly people, elderly people, or people who have difficulty opening containers, may request from the pharmacy that they don't want the child-resistant um, cap. And so that cap, so a different cap would be dispensed. Um, and so Yes, that's required, but interestingly enough, when we look at what, how does this happen, there was actually a recent study that was just published that showed that we don't do a great job at keeping medicines in their original containers, um, and because of that, that results in a lot of unintentional, and po um, unintentional poisonings. In fact, in this recent paper that was just published in JAMA, um, it there was it was very interesting there had been 33 percent of calls during the study period that they looked at a child had accessed a medication that had been removed from the original container or packaging and adults had left pills outside of their regular containers um, in a greater than 40 percent of pediatric exposures involving the medications that result in toxicity so things like opioid pain medicines and medicines for hyperactivity or attention deficit is this just a case of adults being um, careless by leaving the cap off or, or well, is I there think, a reason to transfer the pills from the bottle? Well, I think a lot of times, especially people who take multiple medications, they might put their pills in a daily pill minder um, so that they can then remember to take their medicines, especially if there's more than one. Um, and so pill minders, you don't have, there's nothing that's child resistant on a pill minder. Um, so a lot of it is for ease of, of access and administration to people that, so it might be that they might remember to take their medicines, or if it's someone who has difficulty opening a bottle or remembering, they put it in a different container. Or examples like when someone travels, they might change their, um, you know, puts a quantity of pills again in a pill minder so they don't have to take their whole pill bottle. I think that as we're learning more and talking about this more, I think it's important that we have to recognize that as soon as a medication gets taken out of its original pill container, even if it's for 
not ill meant, it puts our children at increased risk. Um, and we need to do things to get better to prevent to prevent this and to prevent this exposure in children. Now, Adam um, mentioned lock boxes. Can you explain how those work and where can people get them? So lock boxes is, is one component for medication safety, as Adam had mentioned. Um, and so, you know, lock boxes you can purchase online right now. You can go to Amazon and buy a lock box. There's various different sizes of lock boxes. Um, you can buy a, a small lock box. You can buy a pouch. Um, you can even get a, a bit bigger and buy a safe for your home. And so the medication lock boxes are usually a combination lock or a key lock so you get to choose as far as what options there are and then the sizes are very different as well um, and so they are available on um, on amazon um, there has been an increased discussion of trying to increase availability of these type of medication lock boxes to people um, here at upstate we've been um, very lucky that in the last six months we've received some grant funding um, both from the advocate for Upstate as well as Upstate Foundation to provide medication lock boxes to high-risk patients, especially with small children and opioid pain medicines when they come to university hospitals. So that's our one way here in Syracuse to increase the access to medication lock boxes. Um, but, you know, it needs to be something that's readily available when you go pick up your prescriptions um, and recognizing also that there are especially there are certain medications that are incredibly toxic to children. And so having, having that sense of access of medication lockboxes um, is one way of, of preventing an unintentional exposure. What advice do you have for anyone who takes a medication in terms of how to be safe? And, and I know Adam mentioned some techniques um, storing the medicine up in a way um, where a child can't reach, right? What are some other pieces of advice you have? So there's several pieces of advice. I think up and away is is by far one of the most important messages that you can provide. Um, also keeping medications in their original containers. Um, and if you have children or even adolescents um, in your home, thinking about putting medications either in a safe or a medication lockbox. Um, and then other things that sometimes we don't think about, taking your medicines over the sink so that if you accidentally drop one, which certainly can happen, it's going to fall in the sink and not necessarily on the floor or a carpet that you don't realize that you dropped it. If you do think that you dropped a medicine, things like vacuuming up the area immediately to make sure that at least is one other mechanism to say, I looked if it's if you see it or not, but then taking a vacuum to essentially make sure that that medicine is not on the floor. Um, and then I think it's also important to have those conversations. So if you're a family and you're going to another family member's house that you know, or maybe don't know if they have medicines, asking them, do you have medicines in your house that are dangerous? You know, what is, how do you store those? And I think having that conversation is at least another way to at least to begin to say that medicines need to be stored safely. And we're, you know, all of these conversations are with the intent of protecting our children. Well, this has been a very important topic, and I appreciate it. I want, I want to thank uh, Maisie Gillen's parents, Adam and Mary Beth Gillen of Rochester, and Gina Marafa, a toxicologist and assistant clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, quarantines, and COVID-19. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 continues to spread across the globe with cases in more than 100 countries. The disease is impacting people in a variety of ways, and today we'll take an epidemiological look with help from two professors from Falk College at Syracuse University.
With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Assistant Professor Dr. Brittany Kamush, who specializes in infectious disease epidemiology, and Associate Professor Dr. David Larson, who's an environmental epidemiologist. And they're both uh, also uh, affiliate faculty members at Upstate Medical University. Thank you both for coming to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now let's tell listeners, what is an epidemiologist? It's a special sort of uh, specialization. Can you describe what you do? Yeah, so we study health trends in populations. And so of concern for us is is the way that infectious disease and other pathogens spread and the way that we can control those and reduce that spread to keep populations healthy. So you're in high demand right now with coronavirus, right? Yes. Yes. So tell me if I understand this correctly. What we're calling COVID-19 is a virus that is a cousin of the coronavirus that causes a common cold, right? Similar. So COVID-19 is actually the disease. So when you have the pneumonia or the cough or the fever, that's COVID-19. So the virus has actually been called SARS coronavirus 2. So it is somewhat genetically related to the SARS coronavirus 1, which caused an outbreak in 2003 and 2004. So this coronavirus originally it was known to infect animals, and this is now the first time we've seen it. Somehow it spread from an animal to a person, yeah. right? And, we and think so in China. A, yeah, so this is a, what's called a zoonotic event. And so you have a pathogen that is circulating in an animal system, and it makes a mutation or a leap into a human system. And then you have human-to-human transmission is happening now. And so the, all, all the science suggests that this happened at a seafood market in the city of Wuhan in Hubei Ch- province, China. Yeah, and, and probably late November, possibly early December 2019. From someone eating an infected animal or from so droplets the, from the animal getting on a person? It, it, I, we don't know exactly the transmission into the human. What happens is that the animals are kept in close proximity to each other, and so they start to infect each other. And at some point, the, it infects the human. I would suggest it's not likely due to consumption, but just by handling and being close to the animals. So with the mobile society we live in today, is it a given that this virus would spread all over the world, or did we do something wrong that accelerated that or made it happen? Well, so coronaviruses in general are a large family of viruses, and there are four coronaviruses that circulate in humans regularly and generally cause symptoms of the common cold. And there have been two known instances of coronaviruses mutating from an animal source into humans before this one. So that would be the SARS 2003-2004 and then MERS in 2014. And it's in the connectivity we see in the world today does facilitate the spread. Mm-hmm. Some public health systems have been able to prevent spread. So Taiwan has been able to link detailed uh, travel surveillance data with their health records and isolate individual patients who may have exposure to Hubei province and control the spread within Taiwan. So the, the human movement modeling suggests that there would be a big outbreak in Taiwan, but the public health Uh, system has been able to control that and prevent that. So what is the proper level of concern for central New Yorkers? Is it just a matter of time before we're going to have cases in our community? I would say yes. I I think it's coming and it's it's question about when it will arrive and we need to think about trying to decrease the amount of transmission within our community so that when it does arrive it does not overwhelm the health system. So we're already seeing um, schools closing or or, um, moving classes to online. Um, We're seeing rationing of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and things. I mean, our lives are changing already. What else is in store for us, do you think, in terms of what impact this might have on the daily life? So perhaps if we take a look at the way China has handled this, we can understand a little bit better what we might handle, how we might handle this here in the United States. And so within the epicenter of, of where this occurred in Hubei province, they actually had a complete lockdown of individuals and a restriction of movement. Now that has allowed them to control the virus spread there. Outside of Hubei province, Chinese citizens voluntarily and individually decided to self-quarantine or limit their social contacts. And that has allowed the health authorities to get in front of chains of transmission. 
if a, if a person with coronavirus arrives in Syracuse and the health department is able to find that person and then quarantine that person's contacts, then it won't spread. So if we can decrease our social contacts such that there are not too many arrivals of the virus into the community, then we can limit the spread and allow the health department to actually chase everything up and control the transmission that way. Because if an infected person uh, you know, has the virus, but it, they don't spread it to anyone, once their body hopefully beats this, the virus is gone from them, right? Yes, it's not. That's the, that's what the current science suggests. Mm-hmm. Looks like there's a good, strong immune response, mm-hmm. and so that immune response then would prevent that person from getting the virus again, and also the virus would not be spread after that. So you use the term um, lockdown, and we're hearing about quarantines. Um, we've seen communities in New York and New Rochelle um, basically do this sort of th- a quarantine. Is there a difference between a quarantine or a lockdown? And there, there's a large difference, very big difference. And I, and I believe in New Rochelle, they, they suspended mass gatherings, right? So they suspended the churches and the schools. They closed uh, businesses and offices within that one mile radius. The people are still free to come and go in and out of New Rochelle, except for those that have been placed on quarantine due to exposure. And so those people are confined for 14 days to make sure they don't get sick. And so that's been a, a light version of a response. It's, it feels very heavy-handed to our American ideals and our, our freedoms, but that's not a geographical quarantine and definitely not a lockdown. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson. They're both epidemiologists from Syracuse University's Falk College, and we're talking about coronavirus. So a quarantine is more heavy-handed than is what... It's supposed to be, right? So it depends on the level of enforcement. And so when we talk about voluntary quarantine... That's people monitoring themselves and monitoring their behavior and making sure that they stay away from other people. And so we have heard, at least anecdotally, of people in different areas supposedly under self-quarantine and then being spotted out in public. Um, But you can have more of an enforced quarantine where there's somebody else monitoring their movement and making sure that they stay away from other people. And then the other level is the scale that you do the quarantine. And so if you quarantine an individual or a household, that's one scale. But you can also quarantine entire regions. And so the country of Israel has set a quarantine around the entire country of Israel where anybody arriving has to wait 14 days in quarantine before they're allowed into the country. Well, we're already seeing in our community where uh, some events that, uh, you know, would be large gatherings are are not going to be happening um, so is that sort of the same philosophy of keeping people who may have been exposed from spreading it? That's precisely the philosophy behind that. And so if you, every time that you encounter another person, you carry with yourself the probability of switching or, or exchanging viruses or bacteria that you both carry. And so every encounter you have with another person, you have a probability of encountering coronavirus. If society at large can decrease the number of contacts between individuals, we can decrease the the exponential growth curve. And so it doesn't spread as rapidly and as quickly. And that that will ensure that the health system does not get overwhelmed with people with viral pneumonia, the, the, the disease that this virus causes. Does it make a difference whether it's an indoor event or an outdoor event? Because I'm thinking of you know, outdoors, wide open air spaces or, or not, does that make a difference for transmission? I don't think there's exact evidence per se, but when you think about at least outdoors, you have a possibility of being more spread out. Um, however, we're saying anyone within close contact can potentially get this disease. And right now we're defining close contact as within six feet. And so that is actually quite a large distance away. And so while theoretically outdoor events would seem safer, I don't think you're going to be at many events where you're six feet away from every other person. And then outdoor events that you mingle in a crowd, you're contacting a lot more individuals. So thinking about like something like the New York State Fair that is an outdoor event, you're coming into a lot more 
contact with individuals in, within that six feet radius than you would at the theater. And so there's a lot of unknown about this, but unequivocally we can't say which one is safer mm -hmm. and that both are, are, are should be limited. Mm -hmm. I've heard it described that, uh, you know, the cruise ships are uh, floating Petri dishes because you've got all these people in a confined space. Um, same thing like with college dorms, right? Uh, airplanes. But it seems like we're getting mixed signals on, we're being told it's okay to fly, but you're really... Isn't that kind of like a cruise ship in the in the sky? So airplanes, the air circulation within an airplane is different from the the circulation of people within a cruise ship, and so the 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 spread of pathogens on a cruise ship appears to be more um, appears to be quicker than the spread of pathogens on an airplane. That said, we should we should rethink stuff that we don't have to do if we don't need to go somewhere we should stay if we don't need to go on a cruise then we should probably not take that cruise and if we don't need to go on a flight we should probably not take that flight yeah and I mean also think about the amount of time you spend on a cruise ship is likely going to be much longer than the amount of time you spend on an airplane and so that's part of the the factor with the cruise ships yeah, as especially well. if you get stuck yes like many of these cruise stuck. ships are being so it's not a time for a cruise right now mm -mm. So you mentioned six feet. Is that what I've also heard the term social distancing? Is that the recommended distance to keep from people if you're out in public? So that's based on the trajectory of droplets from from saliva as people talk and as they as they breathe. And so the it looks like it's a bit of a heavy droplet that need uh, somewhat heavy that its maximum distance is six feet. The term social distancing in general just means that you kind of decrease your social contacts and so you can do that um, if you are in public by staying that six feet or not shaking hands but you can also do social distancing by not hosting gatherings not going to that party not going to that event HealthLink on air will be right back after this quick break with more about the epidemiology of coronavirus Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. We're discussing the coronavirus with epidemiologists Dr. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson. So I know you said that if people don't need to travel, um, maybe they shouldn't. But, you know, we've got people who want to go to weddings or have booked a vacation and paid for it and will lose that money if they don't take it. And so, you know, people are having to make some hard decisions. What can you say to help people decide whether they need to take the trip or not? So you have to weigh your risk-benefit ratios, and that's going to, to differ based on every individual situation. Um, so you have to think about your risk of not only getting the disease and having severe consequences from it, but then also your risk of bringing it back to your friends and family when you return from that trip. And if that is a risk that you're also willing to take. They're hard decisions. I had this mm -hmm. conversation with my mom today about my daughter's baptism at the end of May. And we don't know what we will do, but it's I'm leaning towards, you know, stay home and we'll do it here without everybody. And that's the reality, that's the that's the situation that we live in. So in terms of if you do take the trip and you come back, do you need to quarantine yourself if you've traveled some I mean certainly to a place that has a lot of coronavirus, but anywhere, right? Because you could have picked it up in the airport or whatever. Do you need to spend 14 days, as we've heard, um, sort of self-quarantining and staying away from contacts? I don't think there's official guidance on this. Um, obviously, if you have traveled to specific places, then you will need to quarantine for 14 days. Um, I don't you know, a lot of places don't have that official warning yet. And so that's really kind of up to you, um, you know, what you think your risk is of having the disease and of transmitting it to those most vulnerable. So we do know that uh, those over 80 years old are most at risk of dying from this uh, COVID-19 and uh, people with underlying health conditions such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes are also much more at risk of dying and getting pneumonia from COVID-19. 
But when you think about the U.S. population, there's a significant proportion of people who have cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And so thinking about your risk of introducing the virus into those populations. Why do epidemiologists track infectious disease clusters? Why is that important to study? So we're, we're concerned about where the virus might go. The clinicians handle who has the virus and who's sick. And the epidemiologists try to understand, all right, here's where it might go based on where it's been. So ideally, we would have data on, on a person that is infected with coronavirus, whether or, not they had been, whether or not we know where that person was exposed to the coronavirus. In a cluster of cases, you have a number of people with the virus where you're not sure where it came from. And if you don't know where it's come from, then you, it's harder for us to control where it's going. So you really need to talk to the person to find out where they ate or where they, where they were before they were diagnosed, right? Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. a process called contact tracing, where you do histories of personal movement with people and encounters with individuals to try to identify sources of infection or exposure. So how far back do you have to go? So the incubation period for this coronavirus um, is about five to seven days. So the incubation period is the time from exposure to the virus until you start showing symptoms. And so when somebody's sick, we try to figure out exactly which day they started showing symptoms and then go back at least to the beginning of the incubation period. And so while the usual incubation period is five to seven days, it can be a little bit longer. And that's why we have that 14 day quarantine. Um, and so we at least need to go back to the beginning of the incubation period to try and figure out where they could have been exposed and all the contacts that they've had in that time. So you're asking them, uh, you know, wh- where they work, their workplaces, mm-hmm. or where they go to school, or what, where they shop, where they frequent, mm-hmm. pretty and, much everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we've seen this in the media, you know, with the CPAC convention the, and Senator Cruz um, isolating himself and other congresspeople isolating themselves after shaking hands with an individual who tested positive for coronavirus. And so that's, that's the chain of transmission events and the, the contact history through, that, that's established through contact tracing. So that's a case where um, there was a convention or, or gathering, and so there must be an epidemiologist involved in this. Someone came down with signs and symptoms and was diagnosed with having this coronavirus, and so that epidemiologist is going back and looking at who they mingled with, who they talked to, who they shook hands with. And, right? and, that, and that's the role of the county health department or the state health department where they're trying to go back and establish that and, and provide guidance to those that may be exposed or quarantine themselves. So there's some who believe that this is being blown out of proportion or that it's a hoax. And from what I've read, most of the people who become infected with this coronavirus will recover. So why are we making such a big deal out of it? Well, so this virus is more deadly than the flu. So we everyone thinks about the flu, compares it to the flu. That may or may not be a good comparison, right? This is coronavirus. This is different than the flu, but it is more deadly. So generally the flu has a... 0.1 to 0.2 case fatality rate. So of all the people who get sick, 0.1 to 0.2% will die. With this coronavirus, we're seeing probably around 2 to 3% case fatality rate. So it is definitely much more severe in that sense than the flu. And then beyond the case fatality rate is the severe uh, intensive care required rate. And about 20% of people that get the virus are requiring intensive care critical care because they can't breathe. If we don't do anything, when we get a spike of people with the virus, we could overwhelm the health system and we'd place doctors and nurses in the position of deciding who gets the ventilator, making decisions. We have one ventilator to save a person. We have two or three people that need it. Well, which one of those do we choose? And that's the situation we do not want to be in. So that's why we need to take precautions now to try to decrease the spread of this virus. Is it more contagious than the flu? It appears or to do be. Do we know? Yes. It does appear to it be. It appears to be. There's, there's two instances that suggest that. There's a conference, the Biogen conference, that led to set, one person led to 70 new infections a week later. And then from the state of Washington, the, the genetic evidence of the coronavirus suggests that all of the, the majority of cases in the state of Washington come from a single importation event. And so it looks like it's spreading twice as often as, as the flu is. Or as twice as quickly. So we don't have a cure or really treatment 
um, for this coronavirus, but we also don't have a, a cure for influenza other than the vaccine if people take it ahead of time. But we, you don't see us shutting down schools when someone's diagnosed with influenza. So what is making the difference in this right now? Well, so there have been instances of schools shutting down from influenza, um, particularly during the 2009 H1N1. Quite a few schools in New York City actually did shut down when we had that introduction of a new type of flu virus. I believe places like Japan have procedures in place where when at least 10% of a class is absent due to illness, they do close down the school uh, to try and control spread. So we do see kind of precautions like that. And, And then this is 20 times more deadly than the flu. Right. And then the severe illness rate is higher than the flu. Mm-hmm. Right, so we we're talking about a one in five probability of an adult aged maybe 35, 40 and above of getting coronavirus and actually ending up in the hospital. And that's a huge, huge risk. And so that's, that's why the concern. Do we know why this doesn't seem to be um, impacting children as much? So some theories are, and we don't know for sure this is still evolving, but some theories are because of the coronaviruses that regularly circulate in humans, that the children have somewhat more immunity because of being exposed to those other similar coronaviruses um, seems to be preventing them from at least showing signs of illness. There is recent evidence that shows that they do get infected at similar rates when they've been exposed. They just don't seem to show signs of the COVID-19, the illness. I want to ask you about testing. And since we don't really have a treatment for coronavirus, why is testing needed since finding out whether this person has it or not isn't going to change their treatment, right? So from the from the standpoint of controlling the spread, that's where the testing comes in. If we can confirm that this person does not have coronavirus, that's a wonderful confirmational finding. We don't have to worry about the spread and do the contact tracing with that. When we confirm that the person does have coronavirus, that's where the contact tracing begins and trying to test their associates and their, their colleagues. Let me ask you, how do decisions get made um, for canceling events? Is there an epidemiologist involved in a community or a business's decision to scale things back or cancel things or postpone them? Hopefully, yes. Hopefully. That's um, not always, um, but hopefully that there is somebody, you know, an epidemiologist or a public health official that the business is consulting to make that decision. And the the CDC will give national guidelines, Mm -hmm. and then the state health department gives state guidelines, and then the the county health department gives county guidelines. And so businesses can look to their respective health departments to understand what they should or should not do. Mm -hmm. I saw coverage that there are some restaurants taking people's temperatures before they let them in to order. I mean, are those sorts of things that sort of bridge between you know staying open and being able to serve food versus shutting down entirely. I mean, are there thing, measures like that that can be taken that are effective? Well, fever is the most common symptom of people with the coronavirus, and so I can understand the reasoning behind that. I'm not certain how effective that is to decrease the spread. I think what you see there is is the, the tension, the desire to do what we can to decrease the spread of the disease, and then the necessity to continue life. And so we have businesses and we have uh, jobs and those need to continue. And so I can definitely understand the the rationale for doing something like that. Mm -hmm. But then can't people be infected before the fever is apparent? Like, could you be carrying the coronavirus and not have a fever yet? Yeah, so the most current evidence suggests that most of the transmission from coronavirus uh, occurs after a person starts showing symptoms. not, it is still possible that you can transmit the virus to other people before you show symptoms, but it seems at least at this point that most of the transmission is driven by people who are already showing symptoms. Is it true that warmer weather may help reduce the number of cases of coronavirus? We really don't know. So other coronaviruses that commonly circulated humans do show this seasonality where they kind of peak in the winter months in northern hemispheres and go away in the summertime. But we, this virus is so new, we really do not know how it will behave uh, in future months. And then to reiterate that warm weather won't solve the problem, mm-hmm. if it does decrease transmission, it will delay the onset of the epidemic to the fall. And so it's not a solution to, to 
hold our breath and wait for the summer. Right. So if we do see seasonality, right, that means it will be seasonal and come back in the fall. So. Now, isn't that what happened with the Spanish flu in 1918? Yeah, it came roaring back in the fall, mm-hmm. and October was a very deadly month mm-hmm. for the for Americans. So can you project the timeline, or are there just too many unknowns at this point? Too many unknowns, I think, at this yeah. point. And, I, and there are some modelers that have, have started projections, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, it looks like we're in the initial phases of growth here in the country, mm-hmm. and so I would expect over the next few weeks to see increasing number of cases. Will we need a vaccine before we get control of this? That depends on how the next few months go and how things kind of play out with the virus. And, you know, if it kind of burns through and infects everyone and then goes away um, as, you know, SARS, you know, had caused the outbreak and epidemic in 2003 and 2004 and then disappeared. We haven't seen it again. Um, So if we see continuing transmission and if it kind of keeps going all all summer and comes back in the fall and the next year and the next year, then yes, we will need a vaccine. But we really don't know how this virus will behave. If there were to be a vaccine developed, how soon would we have it to where we could offer it to people? I've heard estimates of a year to 18 months. And the, with vaccine uh, distribution, to understand that the first, pers- the first people that vaccines go to are the health workers. And so once the vaccine is identified as being effective, it would enter into production and the first produced units would go to healthcare workers. And then we would look at vulnerable populations and we'd scale up. And so it, it would, even after a vaccine is developed, there's still a delay for the general citizen to get the vaccine. Now, I've heard this called by some a, a pandemic. Um, so I don't know if that's just splitting hairs on what we're calling it. But when we have this threat um, in the community, for people who are not affected by it, who don't, don't you know, get coronavirus but are living in this community, do they need to make some changes? Do they need to put off uh, routine medical care? Do they need to maybe not go grocery shopping as frequently, are there some things that they can do to help out? So the the term pandemic refers to how widespread on a global level an infectious disease is. And so you reach pandemic levels when you have sustained transmission on more than two continents. And it looks to me personally, although the WHO has not declared this to be a pandemic, it looks to me like we have sustained transmission in Asia and in Europe and in North America here with the United States. So I do think we are at pandemic levels, but the term pandemic doesn't necessarily translate to community risk. And so our risk of our community is dependent on how socially connected our community is, and then the probability of coronavirus arriving in our community and spreading from there. So if we can decrease the connectivity, the social connectivity within our community, then that will decrease the ability of the virus to spread within our community once it does arrive. So people who live in a rural area already are safer just because they don't have as many people around them, right? Yeah, yeah, rural areas are safer. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that there's uh, sort of some hoarding of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. I mean, people might be going kind of over the edge, right? But are there some practical things that we should be doing to get ready for what looks like, you know, we could have some of these cases in our community and what do we need to do to be ready? So the CDC actually has some great guidelines about emergency preparedness. And I think they were generally developed for uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, snowstorms. And so you can check out the CDC website with some advice about, you know, items that you should have around the house to prepare not everything may be 100% relevant to a disease outbreak compared to a natural disaster, but it's a good place to start um, and to start thinking about um, preparedness. And a, a little plug for local agriculture. Local agricultural and food systems are less, um, are more robust to, to natural disasters or national disasters. And so if there's a disruption in the food, dis- food distribution system, our local farms are less likely to be affected. So get a community shared agriculture going and support our local farms. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson, epidemiologists from the Falk College at Syracuse University. 
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Our doctors would probably be surprised how our brains take a word or two from their diagnosis and create a very specific prognosis for ourselves. Here is Upstate New York poet Teresa Wyatt, Heads or Tails. Please, not in millimeters, I say. All right, the doctor adjusts. It's about the size of a quarter, and it's butting up against your brainstem. Then, somehow, a cool gray light surrounds the room, streaming pictures from my younger life, washing dishes and babysitting, saving my allowance, finding treasures from under the couch, the cost of a comb, rolling change and paper wrappers, city parking meters, silly childhood bets, flipping quarters upward into sparkly summer air, landing harmless everywhere. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, Listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music